Father, you are worthy to be praised in every thought and deed. But we give you thanks that we are not saved because of our thoughts and our deeds. We give you thanks that we can have endless hope and endless peace that begins now uh, through the Lord Jesus, the gospel of your Son as we've sung. And we give you thanks that this endless hope and peace which is born in us through the gospel by the Spirit can yield a changed life so that we can sing these things and mean it, so that we can desire even imperfectly that our lives would glorify you and our deeds and our thoughts would bring you glory. Father, we thank you for this endless hope and peace. We thank you that this endless hope and this endless peace was tasted by and known by our sister Marilyn who passed this last week. And we thank you that she knows that endless hope and peace perfectly without the interference of sin or a frail body today. We thank you for your word, which gives us this hope and gives us this peace. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Please take your copy of God's word and open with me to the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis. We'll be in chapter 22 this morning, verses 1 through 19. We'll begin by reading just verses 1 through 10. If you're new to the Bible or new to heritage and don't have a Bible with you, there's a Bible uh, hopefully within arm's reach right in front of you, and that would be page 16. The book of Genesis is the first book of the Bible. It is the easiest for any of us to get to. Well, faith, hope, and love, these are words that describe the Christian's relationship with God and indeed the Christian life. What is the life of faith and what does it look like? What does a life of hope look like and what does a life of love look like? In specific, nitty-gritty, show-it-to-me terms, what is the life of faith, hope, and love? Well, let's read together Genesis 22, 1 through 10. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering. And he arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. And Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there, and he laid the wood 
in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And then Abraham reached out his hand and he took the knife to slaughter his son. Well, what does faith, hope, and love look like? And what can this seemingly cruel story tell us about that? The book of Genesis is a book written to us so that we might know that the God who made us is determined to bless us. What does this have to do with that? I might be the only one here, but this doesn't seem like the natural path from life under the curse to blessing that God has promised and so described in the book so far. Well, if you were to live near certain special cities, uh, the only thing that would take me away from you all would be to live near one of these cities where they test jet engines. Uh, you know, there's the thing called a stress test. Much to the credit we read of the extreme rarity of commercial plane crashes, to the, ex- is the extensive regulation, attention to quality control, and extensive testing of modern jets which costs billions and takes years to develop. Before any passenger steps aboard, the wings are flexed until they snap. The bodies are snapped with electricity to stimulate lightning strikes, and test aircraft spend hundreds or thousands of hours in the air. And they will throw all kinds of things into a jet engine before they send that thing up full of passengers at 500 miles an hour across the country. There's a reason why crashes are so rare. Uh, They will throw blocks of ice into a jet engine. They will shove 800 gallons of water a minute through through the fans in a a jet engine. There's even one violent test that's most violent of all called the blade-off procedure. This simulates an event where a single blade at the front of the engine due to wear snaps off from the shaft while spinning at over 3,000 RPM. And at that engine speed, the blade can quickly become shrapnel and tear through the rest of the plane if the fracture isn't contained. So there's even a way within the engine for itself to manage a snapped blade without self-destructing and destroying the plane. And no doubt you can hear these things whizzing and whirring from around the neighborhood in a town where they're doing stress tests on jet engines. You can tell me where one of those places might be and I will look it up on Google and uh, explore the schools and, um, and how many Starbuckses they, they have and I will check it out. Well, what does a test do? There's different kinds of tests. A test puts stress and it puts pressure on the test subject. It puts stress and pressure on the test subject. And a test also reveals some things. It reveals something about the test subject. And it reveals something about the one issuing the test. What we have here in Genesis 22 is a test designed to reveal something about the test subject, Abraham, And the one issuing the test, the God of Abraham. And through this test, God is putting stress and pressure on this man. Incredible stress and pressure. And through this test, God is revealing something about himself to Abraham and to us. Three parts to this test. We'll structure our our morning this morning. We'll hear uh, the test instructions. We'll observe the test in progress. And we'll examine some test 
results. Now, that may bring back some bad memories for you. If you've been in school recently, they're distant enough for me that I can, I can do this this morning. First, let's listen to some test instructions. Here's Abraham's instructions, verse 2. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. If this were a written exam at the top, would be the words pop quiz. Actually, there wouldn't be anything like that because he doesn't know it's a, it's a test at all. He did not see this coming. He was not, in one sense at least, prepared for this test. He had every reason to expect his son to outlive him. Not only is that natural, but this son is the one through whom all of other God's other promises to him would, would come. This was a surprise for Abraham This was not the next visit that he expected to get from God. On the other hand, this was not an entirely unfamiliar set of instructions. Abraham was from the land of Ur, and child sacrifice was a part of religion in that place. He would be surrounded by the Canaanites, and child sacrifice would be a part of Canaanite religion and worship. This was not an unfamiliar request of a God to a subject. But he didn't expect it from his God. The instructions would say, take a loan. God calls to Abraham. And there's no mention of Sarah here. She's not in the camera view. She's not present in this narrative. Of course, she's a part of his life and she's in the background, but you can't see her. The camera is trained on Abraham on this day. I would say take a loan. Not only is he alone, but it is not an open book situation. He has got to go with what he's got. Well, what would the top of his page say in terms of difficulty? Well, here's the difficulty level. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go. That is a long and slow way to say it. In narrative, the author is not going for efficiency of words. Oh, let me promise there is an efficiency of words here. There are no more words than we need, and there are no less words than we need. And the words that are here are just exactly the words that are needed to get the point across. But when you see a kind of a piling on of words here, there is a point to be made. There is something that's coming through In addition to merely take your son or take Isaac, he's not merely indicating to us who he's to take. He's indicating to us who he is to take. A threefold layering for emphasis of depth and emotion, a threefold layering that calls to mind a big moment we had only a chapter earlier. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. A threefold description of his son at his birth. And now a threefold description of his son at command of his death. In other words, this is difficulty level 10. The difficulty is relational. This is the son whom he loves. He loved Ishmael. When God promised that, no, you will have a son through your wife, Sarah. Abraham even said, "Mm, can we work it out so that 
it's just Ishmael. I'm good with Ishmael. I love Ishmael. No, you will have a son through your wife and you'll name him Isaac. By this time, Isaac is no doubt early teens, maybe 13, maybe 15. And he loves his son. Abraham, a tender, loving, affectionate father, loves his son. This difficulty is relational. It's also theological. This is his only son. (laughs) Remember all that it took to get here. Remember all that is expected through this son. Everything God has promised to Abraham, great nations, the whole world will be blessed through him, a great name. All this comes through Isaac, which creates a problem. The God who made all these promises over and again to come through this son is saying, take this son and offer him up as a burnt offering. And what would that be? You'd slit his throat, dismember him, and burn him on the altar. Wow. It's a theological problem for Abraham. His difficulty is also deeply personal. Your son whom you love. Your son whom you love. It's personal on a few levels. The last time Abraham was called by God. Abraham, go, was chapter 12. And in that instance, he was calling Abraham to give up everything that he knew. To give up his past. Go from your country your father's house, your kindred. That was difficult enough. But the difficulty didn't end there for Abraham. Abraham has been called to offer up his past as it has been said, but here God calls him to offer up his future. What God was commanding seemed to be at direct odds with what God promised. Does it ever feel that way for you, Christian? Yes, it does. Because so many lines in your New Testament are written to encourage you with great hope that these things meet. We've taken a look at the test instructions. Now let's observe a test in progress. A test in progress, verses 3 through 10. We would sympathize with Abraham if he hesitated. I don't think any of us would um, have a problem with that. We might even appreciate it if he hesitated a little bit. Uh, If he lingered, we would sympathize with him. We remember that Lot lingered when the angels and the Lord told him to get out or you're going to die. That was a little weird. I mean, God just told you that he's going to kill everyone in town, including you, if you don't get out. And he lingers. Ah, We don't sympathize with Lot there, even if we relate with him a little bit. Uh, But we would sympathize with Abraham here because the command's a little different. Uh, He's commanding Abraham to go and to kill his son. So we'd sympathize with him. But before we can process all of that and what this means and what he might be thinking, he's up and moving. Verse 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning. Watch the verbs here. Action. He saddled his donkey. He took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. He cut the wood for the burnt offering. He arose and he went to the place to which God had told him. This is a test of obedience. And Abraham obeys as God told him. He obeys promptly. Verse 3, he rose early in the morning. He did not linger like Lot. He obeys without complaint. Uh, There's no words in the page here of what Abraham said to the Lord. We know that Abraham knows how to pray a good prayer. We know that Abraham knows how to 
appeal to God to do something different than he has insisted. We know that Abraham knows how to intercede for others. We get none of that here. We get immediate, prompt obedience without complaint, unquestioning obedience. He obeys with steadfastness, verse 4. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. That's a little while. That's a little while from deciding to obey to having to do good on it. Obedience seems long sometimes, doesn't it? Abraham can relate. 70 miles. Three days is about right. I don't know that from personal experience. I did ride once 90 miles on a bike. That was a Saturday morning, and I felt awesome after that. I felt like a man after that. 70 miles, that's a long way. After my ride, I was glad to be home and, and to have some eggs and a nap. Abraham had a 70-mile journey, and this was not easy. He wasn't thinking about his legs on this journey. He wasn't thinking about his fatigue. He was thinking about his son. It's a lot of time to think and to think to yourself, to start talking to everyone else and ask them what they think. Finally, he obeys completely. Verse 6, and Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering. He laid it on the back of his son Isaac, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they both went them together. Verse 9, when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. We get scant insight into what Abraham was thinking in this moment with the blade over his boy's throat. But we do get some insight into what he was thinking through two interactions. And if the author is being really deliberate to give us his every movement and action, he was deliberate to give us two little speeches so that we might know what Abraham was thinking. Two interactions. We get insight into what Abraham expected in his words to his servants. Verse 5. Then Abraham said to his young man, You stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. He saw this in its entirety as an act of worship to God. Not a surprise. He expects to return with the boy. That's interesting. Did he mean it? Was he hoping so? We get another insight into what Abraham expected in his words to his son. All of this, I think, is just deliberately cryptic for the purpose of suspense. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they both went at them together. And Isaac said to his father, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. And he said, behold, the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Taught his son well. And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. Abraham expects God to provide the offering. What did Abraham mean? We're not sure exactly. 
Maybe he would provide an offering in his place. Or maybe it's a veiled way to say that Isaac was the offering without completely revealing that to Isaac. In either case, it was the Lord's offering to provide. Here is Abraham submitted to the Lord's will, even when it seems at odds with his promises because his word and command was clear. From these two speeches, we gather a few simple insights. By faith, Abraham believed that the Lord will keep his word. By faith, Abraham believed the Lord will keep his word. By faith, Abraham believed that he must obey the Lord's present word. He'll keep the word that he gave previously. And all he can do, if that's to be true, is to keep the word he's given in the present. If he can't trust the word and keep the word he's given in the present, what does that say about the word he's given in the past? And third, by faith, Abraham believed that doing so would not undermine God's previous word. They click together perfectly, even if he can't see how. How did Abraham resolve all of this in his mind? Well, by faith, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, Abraham did, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his own son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He, Abraham, considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. So there is a first century Christian whose name we don't know, who authored a sermon, the letter to the Hebrews, who has meditated on this passage and inspired by the Spirit, supposes, in a way that is certain for us now, that Abraham considered that if God wanted to, he could even raise his son from the dead because his past word and his present command must meet. Knife in the air, Isaac's eyes locked onto his, hands bound, his beloved son, and the phone rings. It's the same ringtone. It's been a long time since ringtones. This call, though, has a ring of urgency. The angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. What is it this time? <laughs> Could it get much worse? I'll gladly pause. And he said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. Did I hear you wrong the first time? What was the point of all this? But thank you. Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God. Seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Here we get the test results, verses 11 through 19. Abraham passed the test. This test revealed something to us about Abraham and the life of faith. This test of obedience reveals Abraham's faith, his hope, and his love. Was he willing to take God at his word when it didn't seem to meld with his experience, when it didn't seem to go with his gut? 
Yes, he did. And are you willing to take God at his word when his word doesn't seem to meld with your experience or go with your gut? He had hope. Was his hope in his son or in the God who gave him this son? Could there be any more perfect test for this man than that? And maybe you have been given a test of which you'd say, could there be any more perfect test for me? Everything is on the line in this. I've given up my past to follow Jesus. And this is my future. Was his hope in his son or in the God who gave him his son? Would he love his son more than his Lord? Again, the perfect test for this man. And the answers are, in Abraham's case, yes, yes, and yes. Heritage Bible Church, God wants a relationship with us in which he is better to us than anything he gives to us. He wants a relationship with us in which we love him more than our past, as precious as our past And those relationships and achievements and memories and households, as much as our past may be worth to us, he wants a relationship with us in which he is more valuable to us than our past and our future, whatever that future might be that you imagine. He had one promise to him by God. You have one that you imagine. And pray God would bless. How tightly do you hold on to that dream? It occurs to me that most scuffles and trouble in my own marriage and in yours is related just to this. A a tight lock grip within the fist of your heart on what you've always wanted And your spouse is a means to getting it. And they're in the way. Or whatever the case. Our dreams for our futures. Can God take it all away. And leave you with himself. And are you okay? That's the question. God wants a relationship with us. In which he is better to us. Than anything he gives to us. In which he is better to us than our past and our future. God wants a relationship with us in which if we have him, we have all we need. He wants a relationship with us in which he is more trustworthy than our best instincts, the very best advice we could get, our best experience applied, common sense, and all the rest where we take him at his word. God wants a relationship with with us in which he is our greatest blessing and not all of the things that he might bless us with. This is convicting stuff, friends. But this is the stuff of following Jesus, is it not? Who laid his life down for us that we might have life. Who tells us to find ourselves last so that we might be first and last might hurt. Last might come with costs, but last is better than first in this world if we are last because we're taking him at his word.
Was Abraham ultimately in this for what God could give to him? A great name and progeny and land that God promised, or was he in it for God? Well, God knew, but on our page, God and we just found out. Well, how can we find out if this is all true of us? How might we know what our faith looks like and how strong our faith is? Have you been through a trial? Are you here this morning in the middle of a trial? Take encouragement that you're here this morning after a trial and that you're here this morning in the middle of your trial. Being here this morning, coming to church in the middle of a trial, coming to church after a trial, something that didn't make sense, a loss that you really felt, is evidence of the kind of faith that saves. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, brothers and sisters, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold though it perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with great joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And so we say with Peter who wrote that, Peter, who was a sinner, Peter, who had a difficult past, we say with Peter, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the author of our faith, our hope, and our love. This relationship with God that we have is not like any other relationship. God can ask everything of us if he wants, and sometimes he, he just about takes everything from us. And he can do it without explanation. And we can have hope in the darkest moment and faith when all seems lost and love him even more through all of it because of what we read here in Genesis chapter 22. This test revealed something to us about Abraham. I believe this is the main takeaway from the passage. The giveaways are in repetition in narrative like this. By repeating three times, your son, your only son whom you love. Not just a threefold repetition, but a threefold repetition mentioned three times. I think he's holding out to us his point. He wanted to know that he was bigger to Abraham and better to Abraham than all that he had given to Abraham by promise. And Abraham showed that, yes, indeed, when push came to shove, God, you're greater and more glorious and more blessed to me than your blessings. But there's another line repeated here three times, and it reveals to us something about God. And this is where the especially good news is. These Old Testament stories 
are useful for, to us by way of example in the one that we're watching. We're pointed to Abraham's faith and his obedience by faith in the New Testament. But there's something taught to us about God here. And it is a great thing for us to learn and to observe and not to miss. For our faith does not yield perfect obedience. And that is precisely what God needs. We know that. Abraham said, he said it to his son as they walked, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. It was on Abe's lips when he named the mountain. Verse 14, I named this mountain, the Lord will provide. And Moses, who wrote all of this down for us, tells us that Israel hadn't forgotten it when they had received this. With the Pope Pentateuch, as it is said to this day, the writer says, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Which means the Lord is a provider. He is a giver, not a taker. Like so many so-called gods who say, give me your children. And by the way, those gods only arise up out of the human heart. The God who made us is determined to bless us and he is a provider and a giver and he is not a taker. And on that mount, he provided again. And I am not talking about the sacrifices on that mountain that were offered over and over again, provided by the Lord for the sins of the people over and over again. This mountain, by the way, is the mountain that Jerusalem sat on top of. So many years later. I'm not talking about the sacrifices the Lord provided. So many of them over the years. No, this is a greater provision. Ultimately that the Lord has in mind through Abraham's words. As Abraham spoke better than he knew. But about a God whom he knew. For there was a day that came. Like Abraham's at least to those watching, in which it didn't seem that God's command and God's promises lined up, in which it didn't seem like the circumstances lined up with the promises of God. For on that day, on that very mountain, a father ascended a hill with a son, with wood on his back. And implements in his hands. So many implements in his hands. And yet a crucial difference. For when they reached the top of this hill. On this mount the Lord shall provide. When they reached the top of this hill. The altar. There was no substitute. For this son. For his son was the substitute. Promised albeit indirectly in Genesis 22, for his people. Israel would see in Isaac on the altar herself, for she came from Isaac, and God provided a substitute for her life. And here, through this son, who carried wood on his back to that altar, for whom there was no substitute, we find a substitute for ourselves. Like the lamb that was led to the slaughter, Isaiah will tell us, of the coming offspring Messiah. But this one's different. 
for of this one it was the will of the Lord to crush him. A substitute this time for you and for me. So that scripture could say to you and me this morning, friends, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son here, there, and echo that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. There is God the giver. Or to you and me in our suffering and in our trials, past, present, and future, he can say this by his word. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also graciously give to us all things? God the giver is as sure as he, his word going to do this. Where is all that in Genesis chapter 22? It would be enough to say that it is there in seed form. And as God, the divine capital A author who stands behind the scripture, unfolds the story from the promise in Genesis 3 that was so comforting to Adam and Eve that a son of Eve would crush the head of the serpent. This is how he'll get it done. He's getting it done through Abraham and his son Isaac. Oh, we could say that it's there in seed form, but Abraham will even receive some beautiful, unmistakable points of clarification and growth in the promise even here. And I want to show it to you. Look with me at verse 15. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven. Here we go again. And said, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son. I will surely bless you. Good news. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and the sand that's on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. And here we have a few points of beautiful advance in the story. He promises that this blessing will include blessing for the nations. That's not a surprise. But that they will possess the gate of their enemies. And that would be good news for Israel standing on the brink and at the edge of land that they would take. Even this mountain one day occupied by others. God would meet them in battle. And he would provide victory for them, decisive victory. The battle that began in Genesis 3, where a son of Eve would crush the head of the serpent, will advance, and it will advance in the course of their movement into the land that God promised. He would provide nations and a blessing to the whole world through Abraham. And they would move into the land, even though that looked impossible. God's word would come through. Your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. That's new. Here's something else that's new. Verse 18. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Now that might not sound new. And you may be familiar with a line in the book of Galatians in our New Testament. Which says that you and I receive the blessings of Jesus and the blessings of Abraham. By virtue of our faith in Jesus. After all. Wasn't it promised to Abraham, in your offspring will all the nations be blessed? And you might scratch your head and say, yeah, but wasn't he talking about all the nations being his offspring and and multitudes? Did Paul just adjust the text here? 
know with a little more time and some rigor that I won't spend in this moment, that's singular. That's new. As sure as Genesis 3 promised an offspring would come of Eve, Abraham will know that one of his descendants will be the one to bring in all these promises. But right here, in the 35th time that God has spoken to Abraham, and now the last time he speaks to him, and the last time he gives him his promises, he speaks of one who will come. Did Abraham know that that one would also be a stand-in, a sacrifice, a substitute? Surely not. He knew the Lord would provide. He knew that all the blessing would come, that they would defeat their enemies, and God would have ultimate victory through his king who would be a son of Eve and a son of Abraham. May people be blessed in him, and all nations call him blessed, the psalmist wrote of the son of David in Psalm 72. Friends, Abraham on this day was dead sure that God would do all of this. And he wants you to be dead sure that he'll do everything that he promised. So that as you faith face death down, as you face your trial, you can be dead sure of the promises of God. And the one who did not withhold his very son from you will not withhold anything that he's promised from you. How could Abraham be so sure? How can you and I be so sure? I mean, we don't have the experience that Abraham did of going through this day and then finding out God was telling the truth when he took his hand back. How can we be so sure? We'll look right here. Verse 15, the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord. There, God swears. How does he swear? He swears by himself, so that when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us, so hold fast to the hope set before you by faith and love for your father. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for your word, your beautiful word, your clear word. A word to us this morning who need to believe your word, who need to love you and treasure you above all, and who need an encouragement to be steadfast in hope. And Father, we thank you that in this word we have every reason to believe and we have every reason to hope and we have every encouragement to love. Father, you are greater than all of your gifts. Help us as we sit under your word each week, as we go home to our work and our to-dos and our families this week, as we return next week to remember that you are first and to keep you first, and to love you with all of our heart, our soul, and our strength, and our mind, because you are more lovely, our great creator who is determined to bless us than anything that you have made and anything that you give to us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.